0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Thanks for being on Team Human. If you want the ad-free experience of the Team Human team feed, as well as access to our Discord channel, Team Human live salons, and live events, just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. Our next live event is on October 28th in New York City with a cult author, scholar, and practitioner, Mitch Horowitz, and soundscapes by my friend, Stephen Brent. Links on the website and in the show notes. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. An opportunity to embrace paradox, revel in the uncertain, and offer everyone else the opportunity to do the same. You are hereby granted the slack to just be. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, journalist and author of a number of books on technology's impact on humanity, Maggie Jackson.
1: And we're at the edge of knowledge, and I call it an epic chance. This is your chance. Are you going to back away from that and head back into your assumptions and what you know? Or are you going to go with what people say is the good stress of uncertainty?
2: Maggie's going to share some of the insights of her new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all uncertain beings. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, hey, I'm uh, just back from a week in Brazil, which was great. Brazilians are great. Brazil is great. Division of Wealth, man, not great. Extreme. I was in Sao Paulo. And it's like, you really see the 99.9% just living out in this giant, giant, city. It makes New York or Mexico city look small. Um, it may not actually be bigger, but it sure looks bigger. It just goes on and on and on. And then right in the middle, there are these like gated communities of like really wealthy business people wearing think, Prada sneakers and stuff. It's like, there was nobody anywhere close to my income level. <laughs> it was- Oh, one very one extreme or the other. I went down to Puerto Alegre and they were more uh there there was there was a lot more uh, kind of I don't know, it felt like artists, writers, intellectuals, and kind of middle class people and professors and and other people like me, but boy. But I will tell you, it is a huggy great place. They still have some connection to their their indigeneity to the ground, to, to love. and make eye contact and sit and spend actual time together. There's a, 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 a sense of, of, of spontaneity and anything can happen. It was, it was nice. It really felt uh, quite, quite alive. I'll tell you, I had a really weird set of airport experiences. I don't know if I should even say it. Oh, I'll say it. What the heck? We're amongst friends. I'm on the. I won't give the airline name. I was on the airplane coming back, and I I was just feeling not great. You know, I get all jet laggy and whatever when I'm traveling, and I'm coming home, and I want to make sure I'm not going to go home and spread COVID or anything. So, you know, near the end of the plane flight, I took a um, COVID test out of my uh, out of my bag. And I mean to be the honest, I'm the only one wearing a mask like on the whole plane. I think there was one person, another person wearing a mask, an older person. But I'm wearing a mask the whole time, just trying to, uh, you know, not not be a good citizen, but not get COVID, not bring it home, not get my family sick or anything. And so, but before the plane lands, I figure I'll do a COVID test. If I'm positive, you know, I'll I'll you know, tell the Uber to take me somewhere else. Take me to my office. I'll, I'll sleep in there rather than uh, rather than home. So I'm doing the COVID test and the flight attendant comes over and she's like, I'm going to have to tell the captain about this. I'm like, what? Because, well, you know, if you're coming here, you know, and you suspect you have COVID, I'm just making sure I don't then another flight attendant came over and said, "You know, I want to go on a vacation. I, I was going to go on a vacation next week, and if you're giving me COVID, I mean, and these people, none of them are wearing masks, and they're they're giving me crap for like for testing for actually being careful. I was just, it was so bizarre. I mean, I guess in in that culture, the idea is you wouldn't even bother to take a COVID test unless you had a strong strong suspicion that you were COVID positive. So I guess they." Kind of projected that onto me. If he's doing a test, he must think he has it. But wow, it was so weird. I mean, I won't do it again. I'll, I'll do it in the bathroom when I when I land. But it was it was weird. I felt so accused it, 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 as 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 the most negative person on the plane. I mean, the most COVID negative person, the most protected. I was like getting accused of infecting everybody there or being uh 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 you know too wanton with my with my viral load or something. It was it was strange. But I'll tell you, when I was I was waiting, our plane was delayed for a long time. And I was watching in the airport down there, all the different people doing their different jobs and you know, turning on computers and doing their tasks. And I was thinking that these these airport workers, they were so young. You know, these are people in their in their early twenties, you know, and they know their jobs. They clearly know their jobs. They but I felt like they didn't have any connection to the larger systems. Of which they were a part, that they're doing their jobs as if you know you get handed the the loose leaf notebook that has the tasks that you do, so you you open the software and click on this and get that ticket and assign that seat and move on, but they only knew enough to kind of follow the rules of what they were supposed to do to to keep the system going but the whole thing is so understaffed. They are all so overworked that they just, they don't really have time to learn about anything larger than their own task. There's no time to like contemplate, how does this fit into that? There's no one there, at least among the people executing the system, who know enough about it to to redesign it or to think about how could it be made more efficient or what would this and what would that do if we change this or that? And even if they did, there's so many dependencies and interdependencies and, and layers upon layers. So if they were looking at the system they're using to assign seats to people, like at the gate, if they could make that better, well, then, then that would also change the Sabre system, which is used to, to uh, organize the, the all the seats. Or they'd have to go up to the individual airlines, and then to Expedia and American Express online, and then the the price aggregators and the other companies on top of that all these these pieces of a system where the human beings are so stressed and so part of these giant systems that really all we can do is kind of hang on and you know try to wait for those off hours and drink something or smoke something and recover to go back into the machine the next the next day and and even ai is is not even but ai is already like that where even the best ai programmers you know they've had they've got the ai programming the ai at this point so we can look at the code and see it there but we don't even know what it quite does why did the ai give itself this code what is it doing for it. It doesn't quite make sense. It's like when the AI plays a game of Go and does some crazy move. and well, I don't know the logic of that. It just did that. It's the sort of same thing. So now, not only are we parts of systems that we don't fully understand, but we're parts of systems that are made by things we don't understand for reasons and things we don't understand. And the irony of it, to me anyway, is, is you know when a person actually He gets old or retires or something. You know what they do? They become like a gardener or something, right? They they learn a simple craft like making beer from the beginning to the end or growing food in a garden from the seed to the, the, what's the little germinated thing, the little sprout? And they say, I don't even know. And they put it in, they understand the soil and all. And when they're doing that, they're doing the actual thing from beginning to end in a holistic way, they go, they go, Oh, now I get it. Oh, I see, it's alive. It's that's the way things work. And they think back probably to when they were CEO of that big company 20, 30 years ago and they said, ah, if I knew that, if only I knew that, that we're in these living systems and that understanding how things work and having time to contemplate them from end to end would give us Gosh, so much more of 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 I don't even want to say an advantage. It would give us uh, uh, so much more insight uh, into what we're doing and how it fits. We'd be able to create so much more human and and life affirming uh, ways of doing things. Ah, uh, I don't know. There's ways back. There's definitely ways back, but it uh, it requires pausing and breathing, and actually looking at how do these things fit together. And uh, I think that's kind of what we're going to do today.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: I'm delighted to bring you today's guest, Maggie Jackson. Maggie and I have been writing about similar topics from different vantage points for many years. I've been looking for an excuse to engage with her about human beings and the effort to find some wiggle room between the ones and zeros of our digital society. And her new book, Uncertain, The Wisdom and Wonder of Being Unsure, provided the perfect opportunity. We spent an hour in the in-between together and i'm happy to share it with you i'm a weirdo in that you know when i read uncertainty i'm like oh that's the way i like to be i learned to play music like by ear there was a television in the room and i just sounded out what was on there a guy i was at this my first like real conference of economists when i was just learning digital economics and some guy gets up and he goes are you a uh, anarcho syndicalist and i had no idea what it meant right what the word meant so i just said I don't know can you hum a few bars? Right. <laughs> and, but it wasn't, I wasn't scared. And I don't know when it was that I flipped into being that kind of person, but I'm sure glad I am, especially, especially these days. So I guess, firstly, I'm wondering from you is how did you kind of personally realize that being in that weird, squishy, uncertain, in-between place and maintaining it as long as possible was fun and not scary?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Because actually, when I was a kid, my uncertainness, and I don't mean it can be both risk taking, it can be also just thoughtfulness, I see it, as I see it, it was considered kind of shameful, you know, I have a twin sister, and she was the one who was immediate, you know, the snap judgment, she could decide anything. And I was treated as this sort of, you know, indecisive person. And I think that that I carried that that carried with me. Um, ah. So I guess I've always sort of been on the edge of the known and lived there as a reporter and as an as a, as a curious person. It's highly related to curiosity. But this book became a kind of act of redemption for me. I, right. I also like to take stances or investigate things that are outside of the norm, the mainstream, and this is so much that, that the bias against uncertainty is so, so sky high, as you know, when you start out saying, I'm a weirdo, (laughs) you know, because you have a really high tolerance for uncertainty, that's a sort of psychological construct, then, you know, we know the whole all of society is based focused on knowing, 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 and where's the rest It's just something to be gotten rid of, to be pushed past, even in psychological circles.
2: Yeah, and it's funny because I look at our our books and our careers, and we've been on parallel tracks in many ways. I did Present Shock when you were doing um, Distracted. And it's interesting because there are two different perspectives on the same phenomenon. I'm looking at kind of macro cultural trend of, you know, we are in this presentism and people are aching for conclusion. So I got into, you know, talking about like apocalypto and I was talking about the Tea Party saying the Tea Party is going to get really worse if we don't deal with this. It's going to turn into something else and people are going to have conspiracy theory and, you know, the sort of collapse of narrative and when everything happens now. And you were looking at it always from a, a, I don't mean this as a smaller thing, but as on an individual human experiential level, what happens psychologically, emotionally. I mean, a lot of it was grounded in in like the science of this, what happens to us? You did, I mean, not to say that I'm not rigorous, but you did rigorous work. Yeah, do you know what I mean. And looking at what is happening to us.
1: Yeah, but I've always been really fascinated by these macro trends. I mean, the first book right. that I actually wrote was about the nature of home in the digital age. You know, where do we find uh, refuge right. when it's permeable? You know, when homes right. permeable. So I was looking at these macro trends of mobility and what does groundedness mean anymore in this digital uh-huh. age long ago. And then the distracted book was, you know, I mean, the subtitle was the first edition, 2008, The Coming Dark Age. Literally, right. that was before the financial crisis. People thought right. it was crazy. I called up the publisher at the last minute and say, don't oh do it, God. you know, take down this. And of course, wow, uh. it actually, because I had been dealing with these large, macro millennial long ideas about what a dark age is. So yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. I guess macro, I guess, because then I think about this book though. So then you come forward and I do like team human, which is saying human beings live in the squishy place between the one and the zero, the yes and the no. The reason we're not AI is because a human being can maintain paradox over time and experience that as pleasure. But then I read your book and it's like not only Is it cool to have a fetish for that and to have faith in humans, but we're actually more effective, we're more resilient, there's actual data to say, and that to me is like, thank you for being a rigorous scholar. It's funny, for the certainty people, you've brought them evidence that uncertainty is is the better place.
1: (laughs) Well, I like to think of knowledge, partly because the result of writing this book, as something akin to a tapestry, you know, whose mutability and changingness is part of its strength. Whereas people who are intolerant of uncertainty, retreating into certainty that we see so often today, are treating knowledge as a rock that needs to be defended. You know, it's got its borders, it's got its solidity. And so that those images really say it a lot to me. And I think, yes, and going back to your point about redeeming or putting some science to this. When I first realized, I think I started out writing a book about thinking and skill and thinking, you know, because after distracted, Ah. I was really interested in, well, if you have focus, what do you do with it? Where do you go from there? And what can be contemplative without being religious? And how can we deliberate in a time when we really need to be so hyper connected at the same time? Where's that balance? It's not going to go away, this hyperconnected. So I started writing a few chapters. The first chapter was about uncertainty. And so I was getting these sort of chimes from people in, you know, an editor or a person at a talk, you know, or they were really interested in the uncertainty part. And I realized that's what I was writing about. And it right. really became, it sort of took, took over for me rather than, and when I did find that out, I went back to the books and back to the research and looked and saw that there was a, a sort of a bifurcated you know, a zero one discussion about uncertainty. It was either woo woo, let's embrace it. Gosh, this is so lovely. It's so counterculture. Right. Or it was, let's mathematize it out of existence. Let's be, you know, probabilistic. You know, we'll carry on from the enlightenment and we're going to make a profit out of it. And, and that's all risk oriented. So really right. I felt I peeked under the lid and then I began to see just barely taking off was a new interest in uncertainty. For instance, an organizational journal, scientific old journal would have a headline, you know, introduction to a special issue saying, where have we been with uncertainty? And medicine was waking up to it, although they do it so poorly and et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of, you know, looked beyond the rock.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. And that's really, that's interesting. First, I want to, I just want to pull out for people Writing as a collaborative process. I mean, what you're describing is what is so hard for so many of us to do because we want to write alone and we're scared to share the ideas. But by engaging with others, you ended up evolving the idea toward what mattered. So many people are like running to Substack to write for themselves because it's hard. Editors, they tell you something you don't want to hear sometimes, but it's that. Boy, I present shock wasn't going to be about the moment now. It was a it was an editor that didn't even that I didn't even go with. It was one of those editors' meetings. And she was like, you know, I think this now business, this this presentism is what you're actually writing about. And I didn't know that it was someone else. Each time it's someone else. Team Human was my editor, Tom. He said, No, 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 that's not what you're writing. I think you're writing about this. Like, oh fuck. And it's so important.
1: I've heard that in the art world, too. Someone will be doing... And of course, as you know, when you throw the baby out into the world of what the book is, people see what they want to see in it. Sometimes that can be frustrating. But on the other hand, they it they see what they carry it with them. They run with it. You learn so much from people's reactions even post-publication. And I just think that, you know, you can be writing... You can be doing a painting as an artist or you can be writing something. And because or if... You don't have your mind made up, which is something I've learned as I've grown older. I still like you know, having an outline, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm much more loose about where it's going. And I think there's a better product as a result of that. So it's uncertainty every step of the way.
2: Right, right. And then what I want to do is sort of look at how we got here. I mean, for a lot of this for me, feels like life in an industrial age or even a digital age. You know, the, the AI, for example, the way it works is always about finding the most probable thing, you know, the most predictable, probable outcome. And here it is. This is your answer. And humans, especially uh, humans who can embrace uncertainty, we're like about the possible, do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. I, I feel like the whole culture has been pushed towards resolving everything to the one or the zero or the answer. Every email you get, what's your answer? And because we got to get through the email, you prematurely resolve whatever the question is to get the thing off your plate. So, uh, do, do you feel like it's it's sort of this this socio cultural thing that's pushed us towards these these grounding everything in an answer in in a resolved complete thing, even Marvel movies, who won, who lost, you know, who's the winner, who's who's lost, religion, who's damned, who's saved, it, it always goes to
1: there. Right. No, no, I think you're putting your finger on exactly the backdrop to why uncertainty is all the more important now, because we all have, have fostered a culture that, you know, what's been happening let me back up a little bit, has been occurring for hundreds of years. You know, with enlightenment or even the rise of probabilistic thinking, or you know, Western notions that, that we could control the earth and we could you know find out everything there was to know, and that once we did, there would be nothing left to know. I mean, that's a mantra that we've heard again and again. And I think that the brain was set in stone. Our personalities, you know, were set in stone as adults. And you could go on and on and on. What Dewey, what John Dewey, the philosopher, called the quest for certainty has reigned supreme. And now we're beginning to see cracks in this facade of pretense of certainty, and yet at the same time, we've developed this architecture you're so right, you know, where business meetings have to be outcome oriented and Someone just told me the other day about a term called finishers. Are you a finisher? and that means you just you know take something from the meeting and you get it done instantly, and the pressures go on and on, and of course, technology you know we could talk about not just the aesthetics of the neat, pat, template, box-oriented view or or format of the information that we're imbibing, but also the pace and the way it doesn't broker, you know, that Google actually answers the question that we're asking. They're offering an answer before we even finish the question. I mean, you know, you use the word premature. It's really true. And I think we've sort of adopted these habits, as you and I have talked about. The machine changes us just as we change the machine or whatever device we're using. And so, therefore, we really do. We're really mired in the quest for certainty, the daily life of, you know, just trying to resolve everything so much so that the cultural bias against being uncertain is, is (laughs) deeply, deeply rooted in our culture. You know, there's one study at Columbia university that did through video studies showed people videos of leaders, political leaders, business leaders, and I'm forgetting the third category, but people who were shown are contemplating a new complex problem, a new complex problem, And then when they paused to deliberate for 30 seconds, they were labeled by the participants observing them as not influential, as less competent as a business leader. This is not a surprise. This is not a surprise. And the study was actually portrayed in the journal as being, oh, this was a problem. Don't deliberate. I mean, one of the chapters I thought was really interesting, or one of the pieces of research that I did, uh, which was really interesting, was all about forgetting. It was just about, it's about downtime, doing nothing in the mind is anathema and really the more I plumbed into memory, I mean, we know memory is, is fickle and yet we complain about that and witnesses can't be trusted. And, and, you know, we've got to Google it because our memories are so poor, et cetera, et cetera. But the more I plumbed into particularly what resting, the pausing, sleeping, these sorts of fallow time, I call it does, the more I realized how much, I not just that downtime is fantastically good for building memory, you know, for that kind of capture of knowledge that we love so much, but it's also extremely amazingly good for gaining hidden insight, abstracting knowledge. So, in other words, what does this imply? This implies, and then one one example I'll give is the hippocampus, the sort of first basket of experience that helps us turn experience into memory, actually registers time, place, sequence, all sorts of little notations about a memory or a fact or an experience. And therefore, it's actually helping the mind to fold information into larger knowledge networks. And this is not a matter, and this is not a matter of uploading and downloading and the sort of metaphors that we use about the right. machine. machine. What this does is it's a matter of time and a sort of natural, I hate to use the word organic, but the idea that knowledge is living, knowledge is not a bedrock, not a, knowledge is not a file folder, really came home to me in this chapter. And then when we struggle, the most amazing thing is when we struggle back into that memory, when we put it aside and it begins to fade and, and kind of corrode, actually that's even better for our minds because in struggling through these knowledge networks, this architecture of the mind. You're actually strengthening associations related to that memory. So we're so focused on an outcome, on a narrow outcome, on what we think we need to know, that we miss the great contextual nature of knowledge. We miss the impact of time on Mm. the consolation of time, the suspense that is uncertainty. I I really thought that was single-handedly, you know, this idea of, memory as not being a loss and, and forgetting as a right. friend to learning, is what scientists say, is really a total counterpoint to how we see our minds as deficient machines. I know there's so many trailheads in there. I mean, the first
2: is when you're talking about sort of the free time to do nothing and to be there. Sometimes we call it being bored but actually uh, uh, embracing that space it's funny the words we even have for it it's like oh you're you're lollygagging right you're being lazy and it's like no i mean the first thing the israelites gave themselves after uh, leaving egypt was was the sabbath right <laughs> it was a day exactly. and it's not that you're resting from the work it's that no you have a sacred space this is you now be there the, the second thing i started to think about was um People often ask me about writer's block. Oh, do you have writer's block You know, time you can't write? It's like, I wouldn't call it writer's block. I have germination time. That if I'm not writing, I'm still doing something. I'm sitting there, it's germinating under under the surface. And that's because the last thing you were saying was this different understanding of knowledge that because of computers partly, and maybe even books and print, we think of knowledge almost as these nouns, these things, these, Inanimate, like knowledge is that butterfly that I killed and stuck a pin in and put it on the board. But you're saying knowledge is a verb, you know, it's a moving, living thing that has all these associations. And when you think of knowledge more as as sort of living RAM rather than hard drive storage, it opens up into this sort of living network
1: of ideas that's constantly bouncing off, off each other. Right. And that, that, no, precisely, sounds like you're very far ahead of, you know, me in, in dealing with uncertainty. <laughs> I think you got hardly. it down. <laughs> I'm struggling. I'm still struggling. And what's really interesting, too, is that, you know, another, another way in which I think the, the, uh, this upending our notions of uncertainty upends our, our knowledge of what knowing is, but it also and what time and what space is. But it's also really, you know, it kind of changes our ideals of can change, and I think change should. Our deals of success? And what are we here for in terms of all those ideas about efficiency? I mean, that's another word I hadn't mentioned when, I, you know, in the run-up to this oh, incredible God. colossal uh, bias against uncertainty, we've had this whole onus on efficiency. You know, if it's not efficient, or if, I, if someone asks me one more time, did you have a productive day? I think I might just... Do something violent because I I just feel as though why why do we have to achieve 42 widgets 42 dollars 42 followers?
2: I was trying to describe before I knew to use the word uncertainty. I was trying to describe this place that humans can go and trying to make people like I called it the space of suppose like when you're supposing something. Just suppose with me for a minute because everybody's listening and I just. I wanted to open people up, especially when I'm speaking to an audience. And I'm like, can you just suppose, and I would like show you, can you just open your mind, just open your head a little bit and suppose this with me. And it may feel uncomfortable, but it's actually cool. And I said, imagine, and this was the only way I could say it was like, you know, when you, you make a weird sound and your dog's looking at you and it kind of tilts its head a little bit diagonally to the side when it's like, huh? I like. That's the place you want to live is where the dog's going, huh? You know, and right and it felt like your book was sort of an answer to that, that this is not a bad thing, that this is an intensely pleasurable place of, huh?
1: Exactly. No, I think that's really right. And you know what? It can be intensely pleasurable and also uncomfortable. You know, I think that basically we are often very allergic to discomfort. So one of the Sort of processes of, and I'll and I'll get a little bit more to the, you know, to the idea of the suppose, which I think is so perfectly important and central to what I'm trying to do here. But just to go with the discomfort a little bit, you know, the in in sort of the neuroscience of when you meet something new and unknown and ambiguous, there is a quite an incredible reaction in your. Mind called arousal. And that is basically, you know, it is not fight or flight. It is your brain's response to meaning something that they don't know about, that it doesn't know about, that you don't know about. And the cascading implications are astonishing, all because of stress hormones and chemicals that, you know, create more receptivity to new information on the part of both the neurons and also different parts of the brain. It creates more cross-dialogue between brain regions. Your mer- your working memory expands. Your focus expands. You know, sometimes call it curious eyes. And so this is uncomfortable. Because what the mind is doing, as one neuroscientist told me, is saying to itself, something's to be learned here. And we're at the edge of knowledge, and I call it an epic chance. This is your chance. Are you going to back away from that and head back into your assumptions and what you know? Or are you going to go with what people say is the good stress of uncertainty? So it's really i mean it's just like i don't know bungee jumping or you know doing something new that you actually nail you know white water rafting or wh- however it is you are on your toes i call it also wakefulness you're waking up and when you are most stressed that's when, it, when things are most unpredictable, you should be most stressed. You should be in tune with that. So there's just an, a good crunch amount of implications about that. And so I think that the suppose is sort of a tiptoeing into that because I think I would sort of guesstimate that that's basically the preface to leaping, or nudging, or tiptoeing into that edge of the unknown. And there's another really interesting facet of this, which is in children's learning, and why wouldn't we want (laughs) to learn more about children's learning so we can be more childlike? They do it so well. Um, There's something called the zone of proximal development. Well, that's often talked about now in developmental circles and schools and education as a parent or a caregiver or a teacher scaffolding the child. So they are there to help when the child might be overwhelmed, but on the other hand, they know to step back when the kid is just kind of stretching themselves and learning. But that's not just what it's about. This zone of proximal development, which was a term created by a Russian uh, psychologist called Vygotsky, is actually about all of human growth and learning. We want to be at the edge. If we're not pushing toward the edge of what we know, well, then we're just staying within the rubric of both our comfort zone and also what we already know. And it is astonishing how much of the business world or the organizational world or our daily world is just plonked down, settled in comfort on the couch of what we already know. And so, yes, you're constantly being able to kind of confront things that you don't know. But do we retreat or do we lean into that? And, of course, that's also the zone of uncertainty. So there really is this wonderful—and the metaphors, Doug, the metaphors are amazing. There's an Australian philosopher who studied metaphors related to uncertainty. And they are both lostness, darkness, then also exploration— and wandering and it's really an interesting little you know mushment you know a great little soup of both things that you can say are positive and things that you can say are maybe not are uncomfortable
2: well i mean for some people it's more than psychological discomfort i mean part of what i mean i worry about this with everything i write and read but but do you think that this sort of tolerance for uncertainty is partly a matter of privilege if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, or that that it's coming at all, it's hard to embrace uncertainty. Right? Uncertainty is life or death kind of uncertainty. I mean, this sort of over certainty or fetish for certainty, in some ways, is is kind of a privileged white people's problem. No?
1: Yes. No. That, oh, that is such a great question, and I'm so glad you're asking about that, because you know, if you carry that idea of arousal and vigilance. Into precarious situations, for instance, people who have been raised in precarity are often hyper vigilant. They're edgy. You see, can, you can see this on a city street or in a you know neighborhood where people have had social injustice and challenges and financial. They are on guard. And same with adopted children. Same with kids who grew up in alcoholic families. You know, in, in precarious situations, you have that kind of arousal times ten, and that is actually perfectly smart, it can actually be called street smarts, an evolution, adapt adaptation to a particular situation. However, you know, when kids get to school, they are are in a situation where the predominant value system is related to skills that emerge from a world that assumes life is predictable. So a society Mm. fearful of, of unpredictability will not like an edgy, quick, Street smart kid in the classroom, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, et cetera, So you know, currently there's a raft of new a movement really to under, uncover this the hidden strengths of kids who are raised in precarity, and then kind of rehumanize these you know people who are often denigrated for you know the skills that the privileged society deems unusable expendable or something that sh- that should be reformed um you know and I think this is a, this is a really 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 important so tolerance of uncertainty is a very wide huge spectrum it's both a state and a trait it's situ- I'm sorry it's both yes yeah, situational and it's also a trait we're all born with or we all at least have a particular kind of spectrum of when we're You know, I can be a bungee jumper, but I can be intellectual, fearful of you know situations where I don't know the answer. And but then we also are situational. So when we're feeling pressure, when we're feeling time, when when life is really unpredictable, we try to our tendency is to close down on an answer. And I, I think that it's it's very messy these issues. It's very difficult. But I think what's most important is to question what's always been in terms of our assumptions about you know, uncertainty. It's yet another piece of evidence that shows that uncertainty yeah. is not the fearful, it's not the problem we think it to be. It's our attitudes toward uncertainty that are often the problem.
2: Right. And in that sense, it's like some amount of safety, a sense of safety is a prerequisite to moving into uncertainty. You know, there's there's teachers, I know some music teachers, like, who will almost, like, well, not even almost, abuse, they will abuse the student to put them in a state of, of, you know, they think it's valuable to have the person feeling unsafe so they discover new things. And I found the opposite, that once they feel genuinely safe, then they can move into uncertainty intentionally and with purpose and for fun. You know, so uh, and also in terms of privilege, just like you've got to at least have your feet on the ground and know that someone's not going to hit you in the back of the head and that there's going to be food. Then you can sort of move into intentionally uncertain spaces of discovery.
1: Right, and I think that it's also another way to look at it is to think that what skills do we need when the world is more unpredictable? And I, and I, there is evidence that you know the you know climate is more volatile, that work hours are more precarious, that you know there yeah. that the world may be growing more unpredictable. And what skills do we need? Well, we need the deep focus we need that sense of safety that allows us to go deeply that in times when we can can you know give in to that fallow time when we need to understand you know stop and pause even in the middle of a crisis in an operating room if you're insur- and a surgeon and examine the multiple possibilities that's the spaciousness of uncertainty you know uh, quoting rebecca solnit but at the same time we need to be so-called on point we need to understand what's going on around us we need to be vigilant Mm. about change and so i think we need a lot of different arrows in our quiver and that's that's really important
2: i know but it's these are these are almost impossible states to to achieve if you're like living on the platform formerly known as twitter Right. If you're living in an always on puntalist environment, I mean, you could visit those spaces, I guess. But you know what I mean? It's anathema to this this almost a state of of psychic leisure, you know, that that allows allows for the uncertainty to arise.
1: Right, exactly. And and being vigilant and attuned to the world and observant and street smart is not the same thing as necessarily as, as you know, snap judgment and exactly, um, you know, belligerence and, you know, in hostility and stereotyping. And, you know, assumptions, stereotypes are immediate judgments that we unconsciously make about another. They're not... Allowing the, the again the spaciousness of uncertainty, so that you can see this the potential in another, not the set in stone wrong that you assume. I think that uncertainty, as in, in its many 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 forms and guises, everything from deliberation to reverie to tolerance from another to taking the perspective taking, you know, you know to the kind of Socratic. I not not knowing that you don't know or allowing a moment to, to think that perhaps I don't know, those are all really important. I call it modes of uncertainty in action. And we can see opportunities for this everywhere in our daily life. And I can also see technology with the help of technology, but also socially in other ways, retreat into certainty as the easy way out, as the way, you know, that's, I think, the some of the root of polarization, I mean, these are all really complex issues, and some of the root of our unresolved relationship with the machine and delegating our own thinking to, the, to, to our devices and technology. Again, it comes from this unwillingness to understand we need a language of uncertainty and we need to understand how it can be used as a skill and and just going back again to the where i kind of fell into this wonderful world of uncertainty you know at first i must say i really balked at changing my book and writing about uncertainty not just because i felt like well it was you know really the the great thinkers all say it's about risk so that's what what it must be and maybe there's nothing else Mm. and etc but i also felt as though it was really squishy and i you know i felt as though it was so completely not you know I, i didn't really see even though I, you know, every bone in my body is, you know, kind of against over certitude, it was very hard to get traction and to understand. And the main thing that was really difficult was to see uncertainty as active. You know, people would always say, oh, yeah, you have to be uncertain. And then you go on to think, you have to be uncertain to do. And I kept thinking, no, it's an accompaniment, it's our escort, it's our strength, it's our fuel. And it took a really long time. But I have really discovered quite a bit of scientific evidence that shows that is true.
2: Right, right. And it's interesting, you know, as I went through the sort of the journey of uncertain, a lot of things that I thought of as false certainty revealed themselves as delightful, intentional uncertainty. I mean, I was thinking a lot about people of faith as I was reading it, and sort of, you know, Christians in particular, because it's just sort of the stereotypical people of faith, but like people who have faith and faith in God, and they talk about their faith. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, the act of faith, an act of faith, it's active. You don't do faith and stop. If people are going to have faith in God or Christ or Buddha or whatever, if you're going to have faith, then you are in some ways leaping through uncertainty do you know what i mean it's like such an active thing it's not a passive giving up
1: exactly it's something you wrestle with every step of the way exactly it's not a light switch that you turn on on and off nor is knowledge nor is certainty and of course it's very difficult to you know say well there is no certainty or you know no certainty but taxes and death no certainty. But of course yeah. there is sureness there's even certainty you know as long as it's not indefinite uncertainty. You know, you can be certain that you, I'm getting a lot of jokes already, you know, I'm certain I'm going to buy your book. Okay, that's okay. You know, (laughs) but jokes. Um, And, but I, 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 I. That's all right. I'm not. (laughs) not. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I mean, the, I don't know is, we're allergic to the, I don't know, but we're also, I don't know if we really tap the potential of the word certain, you know, we need, again, we need these nuanced languages, but you know, it's really important to get beyond the fear that is attached to this word, and it's treated as a shameful flaw to be uncertain. And that's really, really important. I think it's, it's really important to strip away all of the negative that we have, even with that word, and then move on to exploring this extraordinary frontier And, you know, why can't we talk about knowing a little bit or partial knowing or what John Keats, the poet, called half knowledge? And, you know, he railed against all his friends like Coleridge who were trying to constantly make up their minds before they really knew what they were talking about.
2: Right. I mean, in some ways, I I don't blame people for being intolerant or incapable of embracing uncertainty. You know, when I look at the world that they're living in you know that twitter fox news crazy that's all around us i understand why people are looking i mean the whole left talks about their fact-based you know we're in fact-based reality and all that they're just like wait a minute this is a house of mirrors what's going on so i i do think like the way we're gonna bring ourselves to to places of uncertainty the prerequisite's going to be helping people get their feet on the ground, knowing something, knowing they're safe, knowing that, they're, that there's others here, you know, that there's, you know what I mean? You have to, there, there are, I guess, let me, let me ask this as kind of a, a, a final question. What, what are the best ways to kind of set the table for uncertainty?
1: Sure. No. And it's, I think that's a really important question. And you're right. No, it's, we need, we need places of, of structure. We need sort of the foundational sureness. We need routines and habits you know that we can be sure of i mean these were lifelines in the pandemic um but i think that you know how do we start this i think you know we can perhaps take a page from the many many interventions that are now being created and this is brand new and they're very successful some are in pilot study or etc you know this is clinical but i think we can all kind of run with this and many many of these interventions to boost people, to allow them to lean into uncertainty. And, you know, the word tolerance is kind of whooshy and vanilla and all that sort of thing. But really, it's practicing being unsure and changing your mind about it. You know, many of them are being used for anxious people, which is sort of a global epidemic. I mean, it's the single most prevalent disorder among children in the United States. And a lot of it, you know, is borrowed from exposure therapy, but it has, you know, twists and turns. That's uh, not just exposing you to uncertainty and that's that, like exposing to a, a spider or something. You know, what really what it is, is practicing courting uncertainty. And sometimes that doing something new, some you know, trying a new dish at a restaurant, seems small, seems totally, you know, granular, etc. But at the same time, it's pushing the boundaries of what's where you can be uncomfortable, and yet also move through it. And I mentioned curiosity a minute ago, you know, one of the biggest, most important facets of being a curious person is something that's called stress tolerance. And that is actually being able to handle the stress of exploring the unknown. So basically, people who are stress-tolerant, and this stress tolerance is actually highly related to well-being. Well, why is that? Why is why are people who are open to and even you know leaning into the distress of the unknown actually are happier people? It's because when you're open to all of life the good and the bad, the disquieting and the and the soothing, well, then you're really thriving. Then you're really living. Then you're seeing life as, as it is, not how you wish it to be. So I guess I would just say, you know, we can all start small and then just rethink our very, very highly negative attitudes toward you can let someone daydream or you can let someone pause and think you can let someone sit and do nothing at the office which is usually you know a tad amount to saying you're a loser you know we can allow each other and you know team human mm. can come together on this and and basically not just think and fresh about how we use the devices but also you know back off them in order to recapture the not knowing human not knowing
2: human. And the interesting thing about it that I like is like, in some ways, your answer to how do we allow for more uncertainty is like, well, you can allow for more uncertainty in yourself, but actually it's a little bit easier to give other people slack to be uncertain. In other words, let's engender, promote and encourage uncertainty in those around you, and then maybe hope that they'll, (laughs) they'll do the same for you
1: exactly no i think that's just just true that's really important give each other that spaciousness of uncertainty and you know we'll all be better off from it we we all might be able to change our minds without being called a you know horrible flip-flopper we all might be able to see potential in someone whose politics we hate Um, we might be able to see that we might be able to stand up for what's right while adjusting what right is
2: (laughs) Its <laughs> very human, so thank you. thanks for that. Thanks for uh, granting us all the slack to uh, move into uncertain places. It's as team human as it gets, and it's uh boy, I think it's going to be essential if uh, if we want to sustain this thing, this project moving forward. So thank you, Maggie. Thanks so much for your work and for being on team Human.
1: Thank you, Doug. It was a fantastic conversation and and I appreciate your understanding of uncertainty. <laughs>
2: it's uncertain I'm uncertain about it still luckily I don't know (laughs) and thank you for being on Team Human you can learn more about Maggie Jackson and her new book Uncertain by going to maggie-jackson.com or go to teamhuman.fm where you can find out more about Maggie get links to her stuff and all of our guests Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.